I hope you are encouraged today as we have been worshiping the Lord together and opening our hearts in praise and prayer and through God's word, it is a blessing each week to gather. I know I'm blessed. I hope you are too. And, um, you know, when we come with anxiety or we come with certain fears or perhaps just a distress or an anguish in our souls, God ministers to us. He touches us by his spirit in a special way as we open our hearts to him. And I hope that you are open to that today. And uh, we're going to continue to look to God, who is the source of all hope and strength. And I want you to turn with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1. Um, I encourage you to grab one of the Bibles nearby if you need one to look at. There's hopefully one on the seat close to you. 1 Timothy is near the very back of the book. And it's one of those little letters that we find written by the Apostle Paul. And as we said last week, this is one of the pastoral letters. It's written to uh, an individual, a fellow named Timothy. Many of the letters were written to churches. They were written as um, messages to an entire congregation or entire region. But these, these were written to a person. They read differently as a result. But it's special because we get to listen in. We get to hear what was shared. And uh, so we're going to be in verses 11 through 20 today. We started with verses 1 through 10 last week. I'm sorry, verses 1 through 11 last week. Today we're in 12, 12 through 20. Um, and a major theme of this letter is the importance of good leadership and sound doctrine in the church. And in particular, the, the, the essential combination of the two, you can't have good leadership without sound doctrine. You're not going to have sound doctrine if you don't have good leadership within a church. Uh, Paul wants Timothy to understand this. And last week we highlighted verse 5. So if you've got it open there to 1 Timothy chapter 1, just, just glance there for now at verse 5, because this is so important. As, as Paul gives Timothy these instructions, he says, the aim of our charge is love. Love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. We understand from the first few verses that, that Timothy's being challenged. He's in a tough spot. He's maybe tempted to want to leave his post. And Paul says to him there in verse 3, uh, remain, remain at Ephesus. Uh, hang on. And you're going to hang on by staying true to these things. Um, the key here for Timothy is to understand it's not about being popular. It's not about being successful by the world standards. It's not about just being as pain-free as can be. But the key is to love others. To love from a pure heart, a sincere faith, a good conscience. And if we do that, we and hold fast to God's purpose for our lives. No matter what our role may be, if we aim to demonstrate compassion from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, we will persevere. So, um, let's now see what Paul continues to encourage Timothy with in verses 12 through 20. 
And I'm going to focus first on 12 through 17, and we'll look at 18 to 20 uh, at the end. But beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, the honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, I thank you for this word and I pray that it would speak to our hearts today. I pray that we would understand that like Paul, we are all uh, coming from a past that is so broken. And uh, we all dem uh, depend on your mercy and want to be a demonstration of your mercy. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The world-famous boxer Muhammad Ali once said, It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. And if that doesn't make him sound confident enough, he also said this one time. He said, I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock him out, I pick the round. Um, and, and, you know, Muhammad Ali is quite a boxer. He, he's considered by many to be the greatest heavyweight of all time. Uh, another time he said this. This one really, really is good. He said, I, I done wrestled with an alligator. I done tussled with a whale. Handcuffed lightning, thrown thunder into jail. Only last week I murdered a rock, injured a stone, hospitalized a brick. I'm so mean I make medicine sick. I suppose you can get away with saying that when you are uh, the greatest heavyweight boxer of all time, but not everyone appreciates such, uh, such bravado. Um, there's a story that one time he was getting onto an airplane and the flight attendant uh, had to remind Muhammad Ali that he had to put his seatbelt on. And uh, he replied saying to her, Superman don't need no seatbelt. To which she responded, and Superman don't need no airplane. Now, I got to confess, my mom just shared that story with me this week, and she had cut it out of a little newsletter she had. She's like, Keith, if you ever need a good sermon illustration, here's one for you. <laughs> and, and I didn't waste any time. <clears throat> I didn't want to forget it. But it fits really well with where we're going today. So um, thanks, Mom. <laughs> but most of us, when we encounter arrogance like that, when it's up close and in person with somebody that we rub shoulders with, I mean, it's immediately a put off. We, we, we see it for what it is and we want nothing to do with it. 
Pride in people we encounter on a regular basis is annoying. We'd rather avoid people like that. But isn't it interesting when it comes to leaders, when it comes to people on the stage, people in the spotlight, uh, the dynamic changes, whether it's a professional athlete or a politician or a celebrity of some kind, they almost need to be arrogant in order to be recognized in today's world. Russell Moore recently uh, commented on this phenomena in an article he wrote for Christianity Today titled, Shamelessness Has Become the New Superpower. Shamelessness has become the new superpower. And I think this is because from a distance, arrogance can look like a strength. And strength inspires confidence, and confidence generates a following. And add to that the fact that once followers buy in, it's hard to shake them loose. And so this mix of celebrity and media and arrogance can create a powerful grip, even in religion. And I think particularly in contemporary Christianity. But the Apostle Paul, as we read here in this passage today, was a very different kind of leader. He led from a place of humility, in fact, self-deprecating humility. He, he shied away from personal attention. He took every opportunity he could to put all the glory and the praise and the honor on God. And he's training Timothy to follow in his footsteps. So we see here the goal of good leadership, as Paul explains it, is, has nothing to do with making yourself look good and everything to do with making God look good. And the same applies to us, whether we see ourselves as leaders or not, whether our main vocation is ministry or not. Our aim should be in following Jesus to never enhance our own image, but to bring brightness to the glory of God in whatever way that might need to be. And notice how Paul does that here. He talks about himself, but look at how he does it. He notes his sinful past. He says in verse 13, he says, I was a blasphemer. He says, I was a persecutor. He says, I was an insolent opponent. And then in verse 15, he, he calls himself the foremost of sinners. Some of your translations might say the chief of sinners. This isn't just a one-time confession for Paul. He's, he does this often. In 1 Corinthians 15, 9, he says, I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And we know Paul's sinful past. We read about it in the book of Acts. He tells us about it in his letters. He was a persecutor of the church before he encountered Christ. He couldn't forget about it. It seemed to have always been there in his mind. There was no way to erase the memory of what he had done. But instead of letting it weigh him down, instead of trying to, to, to just force himself to forget it, he let it spur him on because he always saw it as the example of God's mercy that he needed and that others needed. He knew he was forgiven. And so that memory became the opportunity to always extol the mercies of God. He never recalled his sins without also praising his Savior. Now, if we just wallow in our sins, we're going to be miserable. But if we can see the sin and how our Savior has saved us from it, it can all ultimately cause rejoicing and praise. So notice all the times that Paul praises Jesus here. 
in this short passage that we just looked at. Verse 12, he says, I thank him, I thank Jesus, who has given me strength. He knows his strength is not his own, but it's from Jesus. Verse 14, he says, the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me. He says in verse 17, this great doxology of praise, he says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor, glory, forever and ever. Amen. Charles Wesley picked up on this refrain from Paul in one of the hymns he wrote. I don't know which, which hymn it was, but here were the words. He says, depths of mercy can it be, mercy still reserved for me. Can my God his wrath forbear, me, the chief of sinners, spare? And this past week, I, uh, I sat down at, at my piano at home, and sometimes I'll do this. I'll just pull out the hymnal, and I'll start playing through different hymns. And I, I don't sing along. I spare my family and, and myself. But I will read the words as I'm playing the hymns. And I really enjoy doing this. It's a great devotional practice. But I, it struck me as I did this this past week, just, just song after song after song after song, how many of these old hymns emphasized our sin. And it's not like just a one-off thing. It's like every verse. And maybe it was just the section of the hymnal that I happened to have opened to that day. But so many of them emphasize and draw us back to this place of our sin. I mean, we, we opened this morning with this song, Come ye sinners, poor and needy. We opened with Psalm 51, that psalm of confession for sin. Or consider the words of William Cowper's hymn, there, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Now, isn't that quite an image to, to picture in your mind a, a fountain filled with blood? And to think of us being plunged beneath that flood to lose our guilty stains. He goes on to say, the dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. He's referring to that thief that hung on the cross next to Jesus, that, that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Do we think of ourselves as vile as he, that thief on the cross? Wash all my sins away, wash all my sins away. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. It seemed like nearly every line of nearly every one of those hymns would speak of the sin that's in our hearts and then always relate it to God's mercy, always relate it to the blood of Christ. That, that is that for me the reminder that contrition is an essential part of worship. Worship is both confession and celebration. That being humbled is essential to our worship as Christians, that without it, we can't reach that place of need and wonder that worship involves. Paul understood this source of power behind his ministry. He knew that it was God's mercy demonstrated in spite of his sin that made things happen. It wasn't his eloquence or his strength. He was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent sinner. And yet God's power was being made perfect in his weakness. And that's why uh, he says that God pours out his treasures into jars of clay. 
in 2 Corinthians 4. He says he pours it into jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are displays, uh, we are examples of God's mercy, trophies of his grace. He says in 2 Corinthians 2 that Christ leads us in triumphal procession. And that's such a fascinating verse to me because it's, it's often misunderstood. We think, well, Christ leads us in triumphal procession. We're part of the victory parade. Well, maybe not. The triumphal procession was a, a Roman tradition that when the Roman soldiers had victory in battle over their enemies, they would come back to Rome and they would lead a, a parade through the city of the streets of Rome. And, 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 and there was the victorious army with the, with the commanding general, but then there was also all the captives that he brought back with him. And the, there's some debate here as to what Paul meant. Were we part of the victorious army or are we the captives? And I tend to side with those who say we're probably the ones that he has is brought back as, as the conquered ones. Paul was the blasphemer. He was the persecutor. He was the insolent sinner. He was the enemy of Christ, and Christ was the victor. Christ won this battle, and he is now in the, 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 the triumphal procession as living proof of Jesus' victory. And can we see ourselves as that as well? We are the trophies of his mercy. We have all got things in our past that we can be thoroughly ashamed of. We've all done things that we cannot undo. And maybe there's not a day that goes by you don't regret where you've been, what you've done, things you've said. And, and you might try to forget it, but you can't. Let Jesus transform that. Let Jesus take that and, and allow it to be that example of his mercy. Let it shine brightly to his glory. So instead of trying to excuse ourselves or trying to force the memory away, let the memory be the prompt that brings to us, our minds, the tremendous mercies of God. Our failures become declarations of God's glory. That's how powerful he is. It's good to remember, Jesus didn't come to make millionaires. Jesus didn't come to turn anyone into a celebrity. Jesus didn't come to, to make us look good or to give us great social media presences. Jesus didn't come to put anyone in the history books or to even get our names inscribed on any monuments anywhere. Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And that's what Paul tells us here. And he says, I am the, the chief. I am the foremost in this class. A few weeks ago, I met with a young man for coffee. Um, he's, he's starting out in a new ministry, and he wanted to touch base with, with area pastors, and I agreed to meet with him, and he shared with me his story. He seemed like a really young guy. He's a lot younger than I am, but he's already had a lot of miles uh, in his life, and he was just straight up with me. He's like, you need to know I, I, I was in prison for a while, and he said I did some really terrible things not trying to excuse it. He said, but while I was in prison, I found Jesus. And he said, I, I even got training for ministry. He said, I even started a ministry. He was a chaplain in the prison while he was still a prisoner in the prison. And he shared with me all the things that he was able to do while he was there and the classes he was able to take. And he's now excited beyond measure about serving Jesus in any way that he can. And he's, he's just very upfront and honest about what he's done, where he's been. He wasn't ashamed to tell me. He certainly wasn't uh, trying to build up my impression of him, but he's just all the glory goes to God. 
He's a changed man. And I think that's what Paul, how Paul wants us to approach uh, life and ministry and leadership and uh, the humility that we are called to have. But that's verses uh, 12 through 17. I want us to look now at 18 through 20. Because it takes a turn here. A turn to, uh, to warning. Paul says this, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Two serious warnings issued here, both requiring, I think, some explanation. The first is this warning to avoid shipwrecking in the faith. And the second is to avoid being handed over to Satan. Both of these uh, things involve these two fellows that Paul mentions, Hymenaeus and Alexander. They must be names that Timothy would have recognized from his ministry there in Ephesus. And uh, we don't know a whole lot about them, except that they must have had some uh, positions of some sort within the church at some time. They must have shown demonstration of faith and yet have fallen and fallen hard. They've compromised. They no longer hold to the faith or to a good conscience. And uh, they likely become self-confident, maybe even arrogant, and don't see their need for dependence upon God's grace. I imagine they thought they were getting pretty good at what they were doing, pretty good in their own strength, and maybe spending less time in prayer as a result, and more time operating out of their own abilities. How tempting is that? as we become uh, accustomed to things that we do and patterns that we have, and we start to become confident and feeling like, hey, we, we can do this. We, we lose our sense of dependence, trust in God. And, you know, some are going to argue that these two fellows, Hymenaeus and Alexander, might, they must have never had faith to begin with, but how do you shipwreck something you don't have? They've tasted of the good things of God. And I doubt it happened all at once, but one compromise led to another. And in those small failures, they were led into bigger failures until eventually they fell away. You know, it's a common story these days among, among prominent evangelical leaders. Um, I won't do what Paul did and name names. But if you pay attention to famous evangelical pastors, even just in the past few years, you can probably think of a few. They might have preached on moral integrity. They might have preached about doctrinal purity. They might have said the right things. They wrote it in books. They expressed it in interviews. They were the conference uh, ringleaders. And they fell into the very sins that they condemned. They not only shipwrecked their faith, but they shipwrecked their ministries and the faith of many who put their trust in them. And it's a tragedy that Paul wants to make sure Timothy does not repeat. 
So in the case of these guys, Hermeneus and Alexander, there's a, a second thing that happens to them after they've shipwrecked their faith. It, Paul says that he has handed them over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Handed them over to Satan. Now that's scary to think about. Paul doing this. Why? What would lead him to such a thing? And what does that actually mean? Well, we see that their sin is one of blasphemy. That They are uh, in direct opposition to the work of God. They're refusing to receive counsel. They're, there's nothing more that, that, that the church can do. There's nothing more that Paul can do. If they have turned their backs, then they must be released. And the only hope is that through the experience of some serious spiritual consequences, they would recognize their error and they would turn back to the truth. Notice that Paul isn't saying that they're condemned here to eternal punishment. The hope is that this experience with Satan will be short and that through it, they'll change their ways. It is a reminder to me that God has a large toolbox when it comes to working with us for our reformation. When we fall into sin, when we get into things we shouldn't be, there are all sorts of ways God has of getting to us and changing us and bringing us back. And we sure hope it can be through the ministry of the church, through the kindness of friends, through the love of others who come alongside us and, and nurture us along and pray for us and encourage us. And maybe through the development of renewing of some spiritual practices that get us back into the faith where we need to be to receive from God in healthy ways. But if we are obstinate, if we refuse all these means, it doesn't mean that God gives up, even to the point of having Satan step in as a tool for bringing about the needed change. And we sure don't wish this experience on anyone. We should pray for anything other than this, but there may come a point when that's all that will work. Another way of putting it may be that you can't reject both God and Satan. It's one or the other. And if you consciously reject God's mercies, then you are welcoming Satan's torments. And this is the end of those who turn to arrogance and pride instead of humility and grace. So as we look at the world news in these past few days and in the days to come, the world's preparing for what may be the most extravagant, elaborate uh, funeral in all of history. A queen of 70 years has died. And you better believe they're going to pull out all the stops to demonstrate the lavish extravagance of British royalty. The lives of royal families have always intrigued us. The castles the entourages, the, the cars, the helicopters, all the jewels and the parades and everything else that goes with it, the luxury and the style beyond all comparison. And, and you know what? They can have it. Just remember that Jesus was born in a manger. He visited the lepers. He fed the hungry. He carried the cross. And he had no funeral. He had no funeral. And yet, how did Paul describe him there in verse 17? The king.
king of the ages. Immortal, invisible, the only God. Forever and ever, amen. Gracious Lord, I pray that you would help us see the example of Jesus as the one we need to follow. Forgive us for trying to be fulfilled in all the other things. God, what we need is to be humbled before you. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that although we have done all that we can seem to do sometimes to, to ruin things, you, you offer us forgiveness and grace. And Lord, through that, I pray that you would help us to be merciful to others to live our lives, whether it's in a position of leadership or wherever we may be, from a position of, of humility, knowing that you are Lord over all. We give you praise. Amen.